Hey, what's going on? It's the Raptors Resilience Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining me on the line, less dour than it seemed he would have been two games ago, Eric Crean. What's up, buddy? Not too much. Sorry again for the audio quality. Uh, technical difficulties, hopefully fixed by next episode. Although, as always, we promise nothing here on the Raptors Razor Bliss. Uh, but the sun is shining outside in our hearts. It's all right. I'm, I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, I'm good, man. Last Sunday without football. If you care about such things, I believe you have a draft tonight. Yeah, no, that's a great memory on your part. Um, we'll... Uh, it's run by Sean Fitzgerald, uh, media, hockey, general assignment writer, extraordinaire for The Athletic, uh, the former Canadian Sports Writer of the Year, who's been usurped by Michael Grange of Sportsnet since. What a bad year for Fitzy. Um, but yeah, it's good, it's good to... Uh, that, that's exciting. It's a fun thing to have, uh, as long as you can get past the extra moral implications of playing professional football this year. Which <laughs> I thought maybe I could because I don't care that much about fantasy, uh, about football other than fantasy. And I had my draft last Sunday after game one. And uh, I'm a Jaguars fan, unfortunately. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, I'll, you know, Leonard Fournette is not good, but he stands to have a lot of volume. So I drafted him in the flex spot. He was immediately cut. And then I'm like, oh, hey, that's fine. I handcuffed Rykel Armstead to him because I like Rykel Armstead and think he could be like a thing. And then he gets put on the COVID list for the second time. So he's either got to be the goofiest or unluckiest guy to hit the COVID list twice. Yeah, well, you never you never know uh, what type of stuff is going around at the Macho Man Randy Savage on International Airport in Jacksonville. Yeah. Also the site of AEW All Out last night. So yeah. that's... Uh, you know, let's hope Rykel Armstead wasn't anywhere near that, that whatever, whatever. I didn't watch it, but apparently one of the matches went out to the football field. So, mm. yeah. I wonder if it was Jericho uh, Orange it, Cassidy. It was not. It was Matt Hardy, Sammy Guevara. But Ooh. I didn't know if people I saw that some Sammy dangerous, Guevara is. I saw that some dangerous things might have happened in that match. Uh, there was yeah. somebody complaining about a bump that Matt Hardy took that was unnecessary. Yeah. Um, also, it sounded like they let the match continue, even though he was pretty out of it. Ah, so. professional wrestling. Also yeah. a moral quandary. Yes. Uh, slightly less of a moral quandary of late, but still... <laughs> still a moral you know, quandary. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's speak only in relative terms as we pivot to the NBA. Your Toronto Raptors now tied two games at two with the Boston Celtics in their second round series. When we last talked to you, the Raptors were down 2 nothing. They had been blown out in game one. They had fought very valiantly in game two and come up short, and things looked rough. I don't think people had thrown out the series entirely. The Raptors, after all, came back from down 2 nothing against the Milwaukee Bucks in last year's Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, but the margins seemed slim. These two teams are very evenly matched, and if you – punt one game getting blown out and you lose another close one, things start to seem not great. Game three played out very similarly to game two. Uh, it looked to have a similar finish. Tied at one-on-one, Kemba Walker strung out the Raptors' defense, discombobulated them, pulled like four defenders toward him, and then dropped a beautiful dump-off pass to Daniel Tice for a dunk. 103-101 Celtics. Ball game. Except there was half a second left on the clock uh, in what is now surely 
and historic Raptors moment. Kyle Lowry takes an extra step back that he probably wouldn't have been able to take if there was a crowd there uh, to lob a perfect 50-foot pass over Taco Fall into the pocket of OG Ananobi, and Ananobi very calmly just sinks the game-winning three turns and walks like absolutely nothing happened until he's mobbed by teammates, 104-103 Raptors, uh, to make it two games to one and keep their series and season alive. Eric, we're going to talk about game four more than game three because it's the most recent one, obviously. Uh, But we have to contextualize OG Ananobi shot a little bit. Kawhi Leonard obviously hit the shot last year, the first ever game seven walk-off in NBA history. Uh, OG Ananobis is the, I believe, second walk-off in Raptors playoff history and only their ninth overall. Um, Alvin Williams obviously has a a very big historic uh, clutch shot in Raptors lore as well. But where, and I know, obviously, if, if the Raptors were to lose this series in five games, maybe Ananobis shot gets kind of forgotten about. But now that this is a series, where is Ananobis shot going to rank in terms of big Raptors moments? Um, I mean, winning the finals in general is probably number two, um, or or number one, depending on how you feel about that. I'm not sure there's an isolated moment, whether it's like Kyle catching the ball or, uh, or whatever. But I mean, if those are the top two, I think this is number three. Uh, you can make a case that it, it saved the season at least as much as, as Kawhi's shot did, because there was still overtime, and that was a tie game, of course, uh, when Kawhi hit that shot. Uh, I'm not here to get into semantics. It was an That's unbe- literally what you're here for. That's your uh, whole thing. Um, <laughs> taking things too literally. Okay, it's number three. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's number three, and in some ways, it was a more, uh, let's just say, unlikely shot and likely play maybe not shot but play than Leonard's shot uh Leonard I think had what was it 4.1 or something seconds left on the clock when when that inbound happened had the time to take several dribbles this one I mean we don't you just did a very good job of of describing it uh one of the shorter players of the NBA throwing a perfect pass over the tallest player in the NBA that lands exact I mean Maybe not exactly where it needs to, but pretty damn close. And uh, just a big shot uh, over a pretty good contest. I, I know Jalen Brown probably messed, I mean, not probably, definitely messed up on that play <laughs> by sagging too close to the middle of the floor and, and not heeding uh, Jason Tatum's warning that OG Ananobi was creeping along the, the baseline. But he still got back for a pretty damn good contest. Um and so just a big shot. Great. The reaction furthers the moment, obviously. And so does uh, Taco Fall getting uh, put onto the inactive list because of his great failure. In yeah. Game four. D- DNP, not tall enough, Taco Fall. Come back when you're seven foot 12, as Lowry described it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the big thing with this one is like, Obviously, the emotion isn't the same because there's no crowd there and like Kawhi's being at home and, and the kind of freezing of the ball over the rim. It's like, it's so dramatic. But in terms of like, if you zoom out a little bit and think about how it changed the complexion of things, you know, if Kawhi misses that shot, the Raptors are going to overtime. There's still a chance. It was a tie game. It wasn't an absolutely must-have shot. 
if OG Ananobi doesn't hit that shot, they're down 3 nothing, a deficit no NBA team has ever come back from. And the shot didn't break a tie. It swung it from a loss to a win. So I do think that the, you know, the 0.5 second emotional swing was maybe uh, a little greater. And you certainly saw that in guys like Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry. Uh, Fred running and basically spearing OG Ananobi with a hug. And then... Uh, it is, it know, is big dog season. It is big dog season. And then as uh, our Sam Amick reported from inside the bubble, uh, Van Vliet then telling Masai Jiri and Bobby Webster that the Celtics had fucked up uh, by letting that happen. And then Kyle Lowry uh, running and also jumping on Ananobi and then immediately locating the camera to smile into it like a giant ham. <laughs> well, that was good to go on top of my story uh, as, a, uh, as a photo on... Uh what night was that? Thursday night, as I wrote about Kyle's game in general. Uh, he was Kyle Lowry was amazing in that game. Um, we're gonna we're gonna pivot now to Game Four uh, because obviously what OG Ananobi shot did was make sure this was still a series. The, the Raptors, you know, they don't they don't seem to have the like fold up and go home in them if they got down three nothing. But I do think there's an element of if you get down three nothing and no team has ever come back from that and you're in the bubble and would like to just go home, like I am not expecting the Milwaukee Bucks to beat the Miami Heat later today down 3-0 in their series. I just think I mean Giannis also has a sprained ankle and is questionable, so that could hurt their chances. Yes. Um or Boonhoz will just play him six minutes. And look, you gotta yeah. preserve him. Yeah. Uh, speaking of minutes, uh, the Raptors <laughs> in game three, um, Nick Nurse rode OG Ananobi, Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, and Pascal Siakam pretty heavily. They all played 38 minutes or more. Kyle Lowry was like 30 seconds off of his career playoff high in minutes and had the, I believe it was the most minutes anyone played all season in a non-overtime game uh, with 46 and a half. And then in game four, Lowry, Van Vliet, and Siakam all play 44-plus minutes and play the entire second half. Uh, this Nick Nurse is in full smoke them while you got a mode. Don't save your closer for a save situation. That's not going to come. Uh, Zach Britton kind of <laughs> mentality here. Uh, the Raptors in game four won 100-93. to It was uh, statistically their best defensive performance of the series so far, which is a very high bar given how well both defenses have played in this series. Some of that coming from Boston shooting seven of 35 on threes, as our colleague Jared Weiss pointed out, the seventh worst shooting night on that kind of volume in NBA playoff history. And three of those seven belong to the Celtics. So uh, the Raptors strategy of letting anyone other than Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum shoot freely, finally pays off in a way that it didn't in earlier Marcus Smart games. Yeah, I can't believe Marcus Smart hasn't continued to shoot five for five in quarters. (laughs) Um, And poor Jalen Brown and Pascal Siakam, like, in a back and, like, we talked about the potential for Siakam and Tatum to have some back and forths in in this series, and then instead Siakam and Brown just have a back and forth missing threes each way. Uh, Two of 13 for Siakam, two of 11 for Jalen Brown. Uh, But the Raptors, on top of having their best defensive performance, of the series also finally broke through from the three-point line uh, Siakam was two of 13 but the rest <laughs> of the team was 15 of 31 almost 50 percent uh, anytime you drop 17 threes in a game uh, it suggests that your process is working fairly well to create those um, it was nice to see obviously um, just from a you know kind of a mental release standpoint after three pretty terrible shooting games uh carrying the heavy weight of that Serge Ibaka actually went four or four on threes on some shots that Boston will live with but Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet combined to go nine of 21 
from the three-point arc. Uh, it was kind of a, a complete contrast to game three where Lowry controlled the offense, especially late. He had a 31.8 assist game uh, with a career-high Schumann stat, 20 points in the paint uh, in that one. And then here, the Raptors point guards did most of their work uh, from outside the arc. They each hit only one field goal inside the arc. They combined for 39 points uh, and 13 assists as well, and 17 rebounds. These guys both, you know, that's almost a, almost a co-triple-double there. They're pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's good to see not only that the threes dropped, but that over the course of these last two games, Lowry and Van Vliet have found different ways to uh, get their offense as Boston tweaks their scheme. Uh, Eric, what did you see from, from the offense in, in game four? We'll talk about the defense a little bit more uh, in a bit here, but offensive process-wise, uh, you know, most of the last three games have been pretty similar, and these games are being played at a slog, and both teams are very good defensively, but I thought the Raptors uh, did a little bit better. Yeah, uh, first quarter especially. I mean, they had two 30-plus point quarters, which without looking, I'm just going to assume hasn't happened in, a, in any other game. Uh this series so that's good uh, I thought you know the first quarter they really were taking advantage of what was happening in terms of help defense uh, the Celtics really made an adjustment to try and dissuade those drives into the paint and and the Raptors guards for the most part were just making good quick decisions to get the ball out to shooters and that's what you need you need to you know move the ball quickly uh Ball movement doesn't work unless it, it happens quickly, for the most part. And I think there were nice, quick decisions. Uh, some fortunate bounces off of offensive rebounds where, you know, Marc Gasol found shooters <laughs> and, and completely ignored the idea of the rim. Um, so we can talk about Gasol more later. Uh, he's, not as, he's not as bad as other people are saying, but... Uh, We'll we'll keep that for later. The most uh, time honored Raptors tradition: uh, people not rationally evaluating the performance of the centers. It's, yeah, it's it's it will be twenty forty, and one center will be driving performance, and the other center will just be getting a lot of points, and we'll be arguing about it. Yeah. So. I mean, the threes following were great. You wrote a lot about the uh, and the two plays that really stand out to me uh, were the relocation threes. I think they were both from Fred Van Vliet in, in the third quarter as the Raptors yeah. were putting up a 32-point quarter. And we've seen that a ton before. And it's just two guys who really know how to play together, play the game in general, and and know what to expect with each other and, and from each other. And I, I think... They're so you know, pretty, those relocation yeah. threes. Like, like I know that a lot of the time they're probably improvised and you like you maybe don't even notice the relocation if the one point guard doesn't find the other one. But when they happen, and like this is a Steph Curry Clay Thompson special too. And it was, you know, even as they were hitting them against the Raptors last year in the finals, it was so fun to watch. It's just like that kind of mind meld they get into. And the idea of like, oh, I'm going to pitch to get off the ball. And the Raptors run so much weave with their two point guards across the top of the floor anyway that I think sometimes teams like get into the comfort zone of like, oh, the Raptors are swinging the ball from one side of the floor to the other. And it's just like it's shifting the offense to the other side of the floor. There's not a lot of like it's not a meaningful action sometimes. Um, so when when Van Vliet pitches it off on the move and then it's just so pretty when it actually plays out and it looks 
I think it probably looks more scripted than it actually is when it's effective, but um, there, I love those. Yeah. And Lowry uh, and Van Vliet are both very good at it. Yeah, and, like, there's probably some element to the defense, like, shit needs to stay attuned to these things and not stop moving, but the point is the Raptors, like, those guys aren't, like, they don't stop, really, uh, on those plays. And when you consider that Lowry was up at, you know, 44 and Van Vliet was up at 45 minutes again. These aren't soft minutes, even if they're playing off the ball a bit. And, and even if they, they're they not, I, I mean, Lowry's playing Tatum almost every time down the floor. And Van so, Vliet's chasing Kemba yeah. around. Like these are uh, not, yeah. there are no easy minutes in this yeah. series, I think, except like maybe the odd bench minutes where Siakam gets to just like chill on Grant Williams or, or yeah. Shemi. Um, so... I mean, props to those guys. They're going to need some help, which is kind of what I wrote about last night, but they are just giving it everything. And Not every, a shocker uh, that the Raptors are not practicing today. Yeah, everything <laughs> is going to be what it takes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about one other part of the offense. Um, in addition to Lowry and Van Vliet playing huge minutes and playing the entire second half, Pascal Siakam played 46 minutes and the entire second half. He finished with 23 points on 24 used possessions. Not hyper-efficient, but in the environment of this series, certainly not bad. Uh, having a zero turnover game yes. along with that, also uh, important and something he struggled with early in the bubble and has, even though his scoring hasn't quite come around yet, uh, the the turnovers, at least getting limited, has been nice. Um, obviously, you know, 13 three-point attempts was a career high for Siakam. In an ideal world, he's not taking anywhere near that many. And if he is, he's hitting a couple more. He needs that above-the-break three to keep defenses honest. Um, you know, they, he probably needs to tilt that more toward being more aggressive toward the rim, especially on a game where he shoots 8 of 10 inside the arc. Uh, but I thought, first of all, I've thought that he has – at at the very least, done a really nice job answering the call defensively while his offense isn't there at a number one guy level in this series. And then second, I thought that game four was probably the best process-wise he's looked on offense in this series. Yeah, I, and I agree with all of that, which makes for a uh, fascinating podcast, I know. Uh, there are some shots, like if you go through his threes individually – that seem to be like you can cut those out if you, you're not in a rhythm. You don't generally get a rhythm by taking a you know a elbow three off of one pass with fifteen on the clock, and and there were a few of those. But sometimes that's what the game gives you, and, and you know we all criticize. Gasol for not looking at the rim. Well, that hasn't been Pascal Siakam's problem. He's looking at it plenty. Um, And as I wrote in my story, like, I feel for him in the sense that there are not a lot of, like, obvious options for offense. Like, the one exception being we would both still like to see him involved as the handler primarily, but just in general in more screen and rolls. I'm sure you've looked at the numbers by now. Uh, in game four I haven't but there certainly hadn't been a lot of that through three games yeah um, they did use it a little bit more just to get switches um but the the actually actually the wrinkle that they threw in in game four that I 
I really liked was they ran some Van Vliet Lowry pick and roll, which is yeah, uh, yeah they did. Uh, it, no, it, it, they, they did they, seem they did to be attacking a, Kemba a lot with yeah, with and they found guys. some opportunities for Siakam to do that. I actually thought as much as we've kind of not loved his post up volume in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second quarter, when Matt Thomas was on the floor, he actually got Kemba deep in the post on a mismatch and kicked it out to like a contested Matt Thomas three. It was the one time in the series where I've been like, no, go post up. You've got Kemba down deep. Don't, yeah. don't be um, kicking it. You know, I'm never going to argue with a Matt Thomas three contested or otherwise, but. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought he did have some nice moments, uh, especially in that third quarter. But like when I looked at the process, it wasn't way different than what he'd been doing in the other quarters. Like a lot of it came on, you know, either brief post-ups or face-ups of, uh, of Brown and Brown got into foul trouble. So that might've helped with a few of the baskets, but uh, like you can't post your like posting up Brown isn't an ideal play. Posting up smart is probably even more foolish. Uh, Tatum's not happening much and, and isn't an obvious advantage. Attacking those guys with his dribble seems like a good way to turn the ball over. Although we'd obviously like to see a bit more of that. And then the freeze aren't falling. So <laughs> it becomes like the guy can't not shoot. He's a huge part of the like. He needs to be a huge part of the offense, especially as Lowry and Vedvlet are, you know, soaking up the minutes. They are like there has to be some sort of rest somewhere for those guys. Uh, I, again, there are three pointers that I w- looked at in that game. Are like those aren't good shots for a player who's playing as he currently is and, and hitting at his current rate. But I, I think. Game four, at the very least, had, like, I had a lot more sympathy for his choices, and I sort of was understanding the process a bit more, and he got a few to go, and he figured it out a little bit in game three, too, and got a few to go in different ways, and they're going to need that. Even if he can't find that hyper-efficiency throughout, they're going to need him to find a way to impact, you know, he's having a great impact on in all the ways other than scoring, but he needs to do a bit of that too. And, he, and he's found a way. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, the defense has been obviously what's what's carrying the Raptors in this series. Uh, I just want, I want to touch on one more offensive thing. We talked a little bit about Kyle Lowry, and this is poor hosting on my part, but I think, I feel like we just need to take another moment for Kyle Lowry. Uh, in this series, averaging 21.5 points, 7 rebounds, 7.5 assists, 2.3 steals, and by far the best net rating of any regular on the Raptors. Um, he's plus plus 16 in a, in a series where the Raptors are negative overall. Uh, pretty good stuff from Kyle Lowry, and he is, uh, pardon my blasphemy, a goddamn maniac. Uh, you know, if you can't appreciate him by now, you're not going to appreciate him. Uh, I, as you said, he's a plus per, per his net rating is plus 5.1. And when he is off the Raptor, like context, he's been off for 27 minutes in this (laughs) series. The Raptors are a negative 47.5. So getting, uh, roundly outplayed in those minutes. Uh, although I think they sort of held serve maybe in game four. I, it was a it was a short stretch. I, I can't remember these things. It was but, like two minutes. But he does so he does all the, the Yeah, he does a, a ton of things and he had a great defensive sequence in the fourth quarter. Um and 
you know, I, I think the play everybody's going to remember is sort of the dive for the ball, which resulted in one of the funniest review conclusions <laughs> of, of my lifetime. The challenge is successful because the ball touched them simultaneously. Uh, like, I'm not sure that can be a conclusive... Uh, a, con- a conclusive, a conclusive conclusion. Yeah. A conclusive review. Like I, I don't know how you can say that is for sure what happened. Um, I'd like to dispute that notion. Um, <laughs> that that is what qualifies as conclusive. But like uh, again, like that's the type of play you've grown to accept, expect from him, and he's done that while carrying the offense and being an integral part of the defense. I mean, he'd been short on the charges heading into game four, and then he got two more of those, plus picking up a key offensive foul with a nice little sell job uh, on Jason Tatum late in, late in the fourth quarter. Not that it wasn't a foul, but he accentuated the foul, which, as I frequently say, is the main reason players flop. It's not because there isn't a foul. It's because they want the referees to notice the foul. And in that sense, the Marcus Smart uh, flop from game two was the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Also, uh, Raptors and Celtics fans, and we this was a, literally a part of our series preview, like them, both fan bases being annoyed at the other for like the flopping and grifting and foul baiting is hilarious. It's going to be like if the Raptors get through this series – and go against the Heat, and it's like a Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, like bait fouls on the mid-range pump fakes off. Uh, it's going to be, it's like just, you know, pot calling the kettle black all around. Um, and in again, another credit to Kyle Lowry, asked post-game if uh, Marcus Smart's just trying to get under the skin of the Raptors, he said, I don't think he's trying to get under anyone's skin. I think that's just how he plays, man. That man plays extremely hard. You have to tip your hat to someone like him. Uh, Not him, uh, but someone like him. Also, uh, yes, by saying that, he subtly says Marcus Smart is not like him. Uh, Lowry, that is. Um, Going back to when when Marcus Smart was a rookie and somebody said... uh, he was like Lowry, and, and Lowry took exception to that. Uh, which, I mean, Smart's a really, really good player. There are obvious similarities, but he does not have near the offensive capabilities at this point of his career that uh, Lowry does. Or maybe yeah. he just doesn't have the role. I don't know, but he's not him at this point <laughs> on, on both ends of the floor. All right, so we have to get... Not negative, but we have to get more controversial than all the nice things that happened in Game 3 and Game 4. We have to talk about the play of the Toronto Raptors' centers and uh, agree the discourse around it. And I don't mean that as, you know, you want to elevate bad opinions or anything like that, but I think there are reasonable people have felt differently about the centers and their performance and their roles in this series. Serge Ibaka and Marc Gasol have played almost identical minutes because Marc Gasol has fouled out twice uh, each of the last two games. Serge Ibaka is averaging 13 points and 7.3 rebounds in this series, which is really good. And he's done that shooting 51% overall, 53% on threes. Uh, His 4-4 performance last night with a couple pick and pops and a couple trails was really important. He had an awesome block on Daniel Tice. Uh, So he's been solid. Marcus Gasol is averaging 7 points. He is averaging about 10 seconds of being open beyond the three-point line before he even acknowledges the basket. 
He hasn't hit a three in the series. And he hasn't uh, rebounded quite as strong as Serge Ibaka. He does, however, have 2.8 assists per game, including five in game four. And the Raptors have played better in his minutes. Now, that's there's some context there of Gasol is playing with more of the starters and Ibaka's had some minutes in three-man bench units or alongside Norman Powell, who's been struggling in the series. However... Uh, the Raptors have been 11.6 points per 100 possessions better with Gasol on the floor in this series than Ibaka. Um, and that impact has revealed itself at both ends of the floor. Ibaka's offense is basically saving those transition units um, from not scoring at all, whereas Gasol, as we have come to expect, is kind of a, a multiplier impact. Not that the offense has been good with the starters, but he does help things function a little bit. Um, in Game 4, I thought his hard short rolls and either looking for his mid-range jumper or kicking out the corners decisively was a big part of opening the three-point lineup for the Raptors. And defensively, yes, Serge Ibaka blocks more shots, and yes, there have been a couple clips of Gasol trying to trap Kemba Walker and getting a little lost scrambling back. Gasol is an order of magnitude better than Abaka on defense. Uh, so, Eric, I'm wondering where you're at in terms of Gasol's performance, which obviously needs to get more aggressive on the offensive end. I don't think anyone will argue that. Uh, but I do think any talk of tweaking the starting lineups or even the closing lineups uh, is premature and is maybe a little two points per game based. Uh, yes. Um, Gasol has to play better. Or, or I shouldn't say has to. It would be great if he played better. It would be great if he were more aggressive. Uh, what really is me bothered is the talk of his defense. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, that's coming from some clips uh, uh, that are, are circulating on Raptors Twitter, uh, which is probably why I need to hold myself to a higher standard of not reacting to things on Twitter. Uh, but... Look, in game two, the Raptors had their centers, both of their centers, drop back tremendously uh, and allow those three-pointers at the top of the key from from Jason Tatum and, and Kemba Walker. Nobody was talking about how Serge Ibaka, or sorry, excuse me, Marc Gasol was lost in those uh, scenarios, and yet they were yielding arguably better shots. Um and and so they they tweaked it and they've had them I mean, for the lack of a better expression, I think they're just defending pick and rolls, high pick and rolls a lot more randomly right now. Like sometimes they're dropping back, sometimes they're trapping, sometimes they're, you know, hedging hard and recovering. And guess what? With both Mark Gasol and Serge Ibaka, that is sometimes gonna result on Kemba Walker, who is quite fast and crafty beating them around the corner and getting to the basket for a layup. That's going to happen. And it is accounted for in the game, in the scheming and the game plan. And to get, you know, to get annoyed every time it happens is like reacting to Jonas Valanciunas all over again. Uh, not that are not the same players because Gasol, as we know, brings a lot more varied of a game offensively and, and is more, you know, sound defensively in, in a host of other ways. But that's sort of what I'm feeling now. Like, he's only as fast as he is fast, and you have to live with that sometimes. Again, Gasol needs to look for his shot a bit more. 
I don't care if he's not shooting well. Uh, some of those three-pointers have to be taken. Um, some more of them, I would even argue, even if that's a 0% three-point field goal percentage. Yeah, uh, and like he's open, and like sometimes if you don't take a good shot, a great shot isn't going to present itself, especially against uh, defenses uh, <laughs> this, this good. Although I will say, as I was doing, as I was putting together the recalibration uh, this morning, in my notes, there were three times where I had, like, in all caps, MG must shoot, yeah. and all three possessions resulted in Raptors threes. <laughs> so it's uh, just, it's he completely... Marcus all smarter yeah, than all of us. <laughs> yeah, he completely neutralizes the advantage the Raptors have created on offense, and oh. then... Only to create a yeah, only to create a new one. Uh, um, so I like I really don't have time for that conversation defensively, and like, I think it, it also loses some of like like this idea of like throw a buck in with the starters or have him close. Like it's not obviously anyone saying that is not being negative about Serge Ibaka because they're suggesting he get a bigger role. But I think there can be an appreciation that Ibaka is like perfectly suited for a bench scoring center role at this stage in his career. Like he, he does not have starting center level defense at this stage, unless he's kind of helping off the dunker spot for rim protection and his offensive, you know, even if the Raptors starters aren't scoring super well, they're just not going to funnel a lot of possessions to Serge Ibaka when Lowry Van Vliet and Siakam are all on the floor. And so he, you know, I think this is the best, spot for him whether that's defensively where he's you know a little better sheltered or offensively where he gets to take all of these touches and, and doesn't have to worry about you know how they're coming or, or what vol- not that I think Gasol or Ibaka would have much concern for shooting too much um but you know I, I think I think it's a great role for him 24 minutes off the bench you and know you get to play splitting minutes like uh, some yeah. of that again is Gasol up to Gasol foul trouble yeah it but... might be 26 22 if Gasol yeah. didn't foul out of these two games but it's pretty even and and I think it puts Ibaka in a more advantageous situation and the like Boston provided evidence of that in game four by Stevens tweaking his center rotation because what the Raptors were doing was working and he wanted to try Robert Williams against Marcus Gasol and um, Daniel Tice against Serge Ibaka. So obviously, you know, that w- it was being pretty effective if Boston had to adjust to it. So yeah. uh, they then went to Grant Williams at center as well. And it is almost comical in the minutes where Grant Williams and Robert Williams were on the floor together, just how much the Raptors basically just stationed five guys around the key and just ignored both the Williamses until they got toward the paint. It was uh yeah, I don't know if I'd play those lineups more if I were Brad Stevens. Uh, I would probably go back to Ennis Cantor personally, just uh, just to see <laughs> for like eight to twelve to forty eight minutes, just to see how it goes. <laughs> What's uh, I I only have the Raptors on offs up here. I do not have the Celtics, but I'm going to assume the Raptors' offensive uh, rating in those Cantor minutes was significantly higher than their offensive rating of the rest of the series. It- it was 1.75 points per possession. <laughs> so almost, uh, uh, almost a two every time down, whereas in the non-Cantor minutes, the Raptors have averaged less than one point per yeah. possession. So, so just, a, just a light 75% bump in their offense. In those yeah, uh, to conclude the, the conversation, like if Ibaka closed out game four... I wouldn't have had a huge problem with it. I don't think. Like, I mean, he, uh, he ended up doing that after Gasol 
fouled out. But like, I, I mean, if he had just continued to play, yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't have had a huge problem with it, but like, it's, it's inc- like, it doesn't really matter. Like they're, they're both being optimized. And I think Gasol getting the criticism he is, as a result of like the guy who's not making his outside shots is, and appears slow and is a bit slower, but it's not like, Abaka's foot speed has helped them in any like relative foot speed is helping them in any meaningful way on defense. So yeah. to what end, like he's making shots and it's been very important to the Raptors. He's like the only thing coming off <laughs> the bench, but to say that he should be playing 32 minutes all of a sudden, I like the numbers don't back that up. And, and like, frankly, my eyes don't back that up. So I think it's just yeah. getting caught up in some, admittedly moments that look very bad yeah the other thing with the idea of Ibaka closing is it's the old Patrick Patterson thing of he's then playing the final 16 to 18 minutes of the game straight and you know are are you not pretty gassed at that point and and I think that's probably the reason he didn't close uh, yeah wasn't given that shot it's just yeah so I mean before starting Ibaka what I would probably do is um you know maybe get you know Ibaka Maybe they just in the second half they do a like a, a more standard six and six split of Abaka comes in a little earlier in the third uh, than he normally does, and then Gasol comes back in at the start of the fourth, which maybe helps those bench units anyway. I, I'm not really sure. Um, but anyway. again, when you're playing as well as the Raptors are in the third quarter, like it's and in a series that is this close, you're not really rushing to make changes that aren't hurting you ultimately or, or uh, at least as as much as they might otherwise so yeah. i i have no problem with the way it's going uh again if it if abaka's closing occasionally great that's fine it will mean he's playing very well and he is playing pretty damn well but i i don't think the gap that is imagined is not real now i would love to be able to advocate here for the raptors closing small but unfortunately uh, Norman Powell is playing quite poorly, uh, averaging three, uh, 6.8 points in 18.6 minutes, shooting 33% from the floor. Uh, and at least in game, I mean, I don't think I've had a season. Powell has become the, the worst defender in the rotation, and he has not had a good decision making or defensive series. Uh, he could probably, you could probably craft an argument that. He needed he needed a little bit more leash than he got in game three to really find a groove or whatever. Uh, but game four he got 19 minutes and was yeah he was a plus one in those minutes, but he was not a big driving factor in that. I don't think he did get the line, which was nice. Um, the the other question with the bench, you know, Norman Powell is going to be in that role. I don't think that's going to change as the seventh guy. Uh, once again. Nick Nurse, only a cameo for an eighth man. It was Matt Thomas for a second game in a row. Some good process stuff. The results weren't there. Almost the exact opposite of what happened in game three when Thomas got that cameo. We haven't seen Terrence Davis in a bit. We haven't seen Chris Boucher or Ronda Hellas-Jefferson in a bit. Nick Nurse talked before game four about thinking that, you know, some wild card is going to emerge in that spot. Uh, Eric, I don't know if there's a wild card in this deck, this series, based on the way the first four have gone. Uh, I mean, or one that one that nurse is gonna. Yeah, play I, I anyway. was gonna say like I'd still like to see Davis get another shot. Me um, too. Especially, I'm when, also not. I'm not against the Matt Thomas minutes. No, no, no. I, I mean, they've they've gone fine. If, if you like 
teams. <laughs> I'm just like, again, I have the on-offs open. Uh, offensive rating with Thomas on the floor, 65.4. Defensive rating, 65.4. <laughs> um, again, in 12 minutes. So it's not like we're looking at an ocean of, of sample. Um, just, you know, you think of, like a game like game four when the Raptors are have, having so much trouble getting into the paint, having another slasher or, or guy who can use his own dribble a little bit to try and put pressure on the defense. I don't hate that idea. I understand the difficulty that it presents defensively. Uh, we saw how the Celtics took advantage of it, and I think that was game two. Uh, you have to be nearly as careful as about when he's playing and in which context against which lineups as you do with Matt Thomas. Uh, I, I think it's become clear that that's the case uh, against this team, at least against the Celtics. But I think he's that's the skill set they could perhaps benefit from the most. Uh, nobody else messaged me about Rondé Hollis Jefferson in the series. He's not playing for a good reason, which isn't to criticize Rondé Hollis Jefferson, but in a series where you already have tons of defense and not enough offense, Rondé just doesn't bring enough on the offensive end to make it worthwhile, uh, unless you really want to make this a rock fight. Uh, I don't. I don't think I want this to get much rockier, Blake. Now, uh, speaking of rockier, some breaking news on the podcast that Raptors fans will be mad at me bringing up, uh, but it just came across my screen. Eric Teoscar Hernandez is out, and it's supposed to be a serious injury. Oh no! Yeah. There goes the, uh, if you were getting ready to pivot from the Raptors finals run to the Blue Jays finals run, uh, they just lost their MVP, so. Uh, Darn. That's bad. He's been fun. Damn. Uh, anyway, I'm sure uh, Charlie Montoya just would have sat him today for no reason, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- thankfully, we cover a team that's making better coaching decisions <laughs> and playing their good players too much instead of letting Derek Fisher hit with the bases loaded in a high leverage spot. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you can't say they're not entertaining. They play some games, man. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, anyway. Uh, the Raptors also play some games. They've got at least two more. Game five coming up Monday at 630, game six Wednesday at 630. And if a game seven is necessary, it'll go on a Friday night. Uh, Eric, as they say, this is now a best two out of three. Do you ascribe to things like momentum and vibes and stuff like that in the sense that, you know, the Raptors having won the last two have an edge here? Uh, or are you more like me and you see the series-wide stats being almost deadlocked and shrug your shoulders and think it's as close to a 50-50 as you did before the series? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, I think in the – it was a Sixers series last year where it seemed like every time any team had uh, an advantage, they – like the other team came out and, and blew them out, basically. Um not, not. I mean, not necessarily that extreme, but uh, I've I've seen too many playoff series where each game is independent of the other, and this series isn't like that. Like you can see the through lines pretty clearly, and you can see like two very even teams making uh, 
adjustments to counter what the other is doing. And uh, Jared Weiss from the Athletic Boston has a really nice story this morning uh, on that. Uh, but I especially if you like chess, um, which I do not. But I'll—I I'll, uh, mean, I can appreciate it, but I'm not a chess player myself. Um, I, I just. Look, the the Raptors aren't going to win on the strength of their feeling good. Uh, the shot making helps, and if if we can conclusively say that feeling good leads to good shot making, I, I prefer the notion that good movement, both with the ball and with your players, has more to do with good shot making than than uh, feeling good, and maybe moving more as a result of feeling good. So I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm very much in the the last three games have been uh, pretty damn even. Um, the Raptors won two of them, which is very, very good for them. And these last three can go in any way, 2-1, 2-0 for either team. I would not be surprised, uh, terribly surprised by any of those results. The idea of vibes driving things is something that I would have thrown out entirely uh, a couple years ago. But as Jalen Brown and I have gotten more into astrology, uh, you know, maybe there's something to the energy of this Pisces moon. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was really into that. I love how into the moons you are. Um, I love moons, man. I listen to the hotel year. Of course I love the moon. Yeah. Um, it's all, all I sing about. <laughs> um. I don't know anything uh, like I know Mercury and retrograde is bad, but uh, yeah. other than that, I don't really know. Uh, the, the Pisces moon is expect the unexpected. So Jalen Brown posted it on his Instagram story, uh, went up to O and the unexpected has certainly happened since hoisted uh, that, that lead hoisted yeah. by his own petard. Yeah. That's some good petard hoisting right there. Yeah. OG Ananobi saw that petard. Hoisted it. Hoist. Yeah. <laughs> you can make the yoink sound, but hoist. <laughs> no. Hoisted it. Yeah. Hoist, uh, hoist Eric, would make a good onomatopoeia as well as a verb. Yes. Uh, Eric, as we head into game five, what is the, let's reduce this down to the one thing you're looking for. I guess instead of the one thing you're looking for, what is the thing you are anticipating writing about after game five? Uh, that you you think will have the biggest hand in determining where things go from here? Is it is it Siakam still as much as we've you know maybe spilled too much bandwidth on him? To well, I'm, I'm not I'm not writing about Siakam for a third time after a th- for a third time after five games. Uh, I, I mean, I guess there's a scenario in which I do, like if he scores fifty points or something. But maybe even that, I'd give it to my loyal secondary writer. Um, but yeah, I mean, Siakam is still the big swing factor to me. Uh, I, I just think in some form, the Raptors need to find another guy puncturing the defense. And I mean, Ananobi has looked pretty good doing that in a very, very small role. And I, like Nick Nurse, I would be hesitant in directing more purposely his way. For that to happen, I think if the ball does find his way, um, then that's uh, that he's shown that he can uh, do that very well. Uh, but I think I don't know who it will be, 
I don't know who, if it will be anybody, but that's what I need to see from the Raptors because, like, they had a good three-point shooting game. They won when the Celtics had a bad three-point shooting game. I'm not going to say that's all variance, but some of it is, and they've got to find another way to create more reliable buckets, as does Boston, obviously. But, you know, looking at it from a Raptors perspective, uh, it all can't be, uh, you know, lots of action on the outside uh, when the Kyle Lowry tap is turned off uh, in the way it was in game four. So you mentioned OG Ananobi, as we discussed at the park yesterday with Walter, uh, his workload is more symptom of the offense function than the way they run their offense necessarily. He's down at a 12.9 usage rate in this series, which is even lower than in the regular season. But hey, anything to keep that 71% true shooting nice and high. Um, why would you funnel more possessions? Like, I have horrible news. What? Uh, just showing up in my Twitter feed. It appears there is a condo that might be going up where Sneaky D's is. No, come on. Uh, I'm not sure. I- I'm looking at the condo application. Uh, no meetings are currently scheduled, but there is a proposal, a development application uh, for 419 College Street. A proposal for a 13-story mixed-use building. Uh, unless they're building that on top of Sneaky D's, which I don't find likely. Uh, we need some uh, some action in Ward 11. Email your Ward 11 counselor. Uh, because, no, this, this, this cannot stand. Yeah, uh, I'm going Mike to... Mike Layton. It's Mike Layton. Oh, he's not a uh, he's not my ward counselor, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to pivot from bugging Josh Matlow relentlessly about police budgets to bugging him relentlessly about Sneaky D's condo development. Yeah, uh, the two big issues of our time. Yes. Uh, all right, we should uh, go, and we'll be back after Game Six, win or lose, or setting up Game Seven. Eric, thanks so much, buddy. Thanks, Blake. Enjoy the games, y'all. See ya.